We are in a series through the book of Philippians. We're calling it Philippians Partnership in the Gospel. It's one of the primary themes that you see in all of the book of Philippians is partnership. And we just felt like, hey, this is the perfect book for us to start our church. We literally started just last Sunday. And this is the perfect book for us to start because we want to be a church that's centered around the gospel, but we're in relationships with one another where we want to partner with one another in both getting the gospel deep down inside of us, but also getting the gospel out to a city that so desperately needs to hear about the good news of Jesus. All right. So we're in, we're closing out the first chapter tonight. We're going to be looking at Philippians 1 verses 27 through 30. This is page 1040 in the seat back Bible in front of you. So you can grab that out if you would like. Um, if you would, if you're able, you can stand with me for the reading of God's word. All right. I'll read this for us. Then I'll pray. At the very end, there's like a call and response thing that you can participate in if you feel comfortable in doing so. I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And there's an underlined portion that says, thanks be to God. You can say that out loud afterwards if you feel comfortable, all right? So here's verse 27. It says this. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent... I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that tonight as we are working through just these few verses, God, that you would come and you would meet us in this place. The whole purpose of why we gather together as a church is, one, we want to be reminded of the truths that we know and hold so dear about who Jesus is and what he's done for us, but also, God, we come because we want to experience you. And your Bible tells us that any time that your word is open and that it's taught or it's preached, that it never returns void. And so, God, I pray that you would remain true to your promises. I need to hear from you tonight, God. We need you. So as we gather here, we don't just come just to sing songs and to have fellowship. No, we come here because we want to know you, God. And so would you come and would you meet us? Would you speak to us through your word? And may we leave this place feeling built up and encouraged. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. So I, I've mentioned this before, but I, my first job that I got out of college was working at a local bank in Oklahoma City. And uh, I worked at the main location for this small little bank. And that meant that the headquarters for this bank were literally right next door. And so the president of this bank, he would often take like lunch walks and whenever he took his lunch walk, he would come and walk right into our lobby. And he would come and he'd do his normal, like, hey, how are you doing? How are things going? What's it been like today? If you had a lot of customers that had come through. And so you'd have the normal chit-chat that was going on. But every so often, he would come in and he would have a clear agenda for what he was wanting to talk to us about. So he would come in. He would do his normal, like, greetings and talking to us, catching up on the day. But he always had this one phrase that he would say. He would say, here's what I want. 
So you'd get through all the, the like, hey, how are you doing? All that stuff. And then it, it was just like a clear, quick movement to, all right, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I want. Here's what, we, here's what we're going to do. And then he would just go off into the deep end of whatever was kind of running through his mind, whether it was like what we want the lobby to look like or whatever, what sales things we're trying to do with certain accounts. Like he would come in, he had a very clear agenda and he always had this line, here's what I want to do or here's what we're going to do. And this is what you kind of get from Paul at the very beginning of this passage. All right. So what Paul has done is he's worked through his greetings at the very beginning of the chapter so far. He's talked about how much he loves the Philippians and the partnership that they have in the gospel. He's given updates on himself and his imprisonment. Also the advancement of the gospel. He's shared stories about how things are progressing. And now he turns to the purpose of the letter. Of the letter. And we see this in verse 27. It says this, just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul's entire letter to the Philippians revolves around this one verse. So if you're like an English nerd and you really get into like grammar and literature and things like this is the thesis statement of the whole entire letter. All right. Everything that Paul unpacks is all around this one verse, verse 27, which means we need to pay close attention to it for us to understand the rest of the book. All right. So here's what I want to do tonight. All right. I just want to look at a couple of questions for us to really wrestle with this so important verse in the book of Philippians. All right. So here's the first question I want us to wrestle with. What does it mean to live worthy of the gospel of Christ? All right. So that's the first one. The second one is this. How do we live in a way that is worthy of the gospel? All right. We'll work through these questions. We have a couple of points that I want to hit under ETH underneath each of them, and then we'll conclude, all right? So here we go. First question, all right? What does it mean to live a worthy life of the gospel? All right, so from what we see in this verse, it means at least two things, all right? So if you're a note taker, here's the first one, all right? It means you live differently. It means you live differently, all right? So Paul tells the Philippians that they have a new citizenship, all right, so as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel. And I've mentioned this before, if you've been here with us or if you watched online, that Philippi was a city that had great pride in its Roman culture. All right, so there's been historic battles that have taken place, Roman battles that have taken place in Philippi. After these massive battles have happened, those who were victors, some of those soldiers settled their families into this city of Philippi. There's Roman architecture that's everywhere. I mean, it's just beautiful Roman architecture that's in Philippi. And then you also have all the Roman commerce that's running through Philippi as one of the main commerce roads for all of the Roman Empire. So if you wanted to sell anything, if you were a business person, you everything that you had, it had to go through Philippi at some point. So lots of Roman culture that is taking place in Philippi. And since they were steeped with this Roman culture, they were influenced by Roman values. And so Paul is reminding the Philippians that their citizenship, citizenship no longer resides with this Rome that they've prided themselves on of being a part of this empire, but now their citizenship rests in heaven. And this means that the Roman values are no longer their values, but actually it's the heavenly values by which they're called to live. Now, we need to listen up here. Because we live in a country that has influence, if not more influence than the Roman Empire had or any other empire that has 
ever come across the face of this earth. As Americans, we must realize that where we live shapes the way that we live. Where we live shapes the way that we live, meaning like the values of our society influence the way that we think and we live and we function in this world. For instance, all right, so there's this guy, L. Robert Coles, all right, he's a director, he's the executive director of the Washington International Center. So basically, here's what he does, all right? He works for this center that helps international families that are transitioning to the United States, helps them in their transition and getting acclimated into the United States. Literally thousands of families that he helps every single year. And so what he has done is he's tried to really do a thorough study of American culture to help these families that are coming from international places into the United States to help them really get a grip and an understanding of how their American life and mind works so that they can get integrated into life. And so what they've done is they put together 13 values of their American culture. Now, I'm not going to work through all 13 of them, but I thought there's three of them. Maybe I'm pulling these out because they're the most convicting to me, all right? But here's 13 values. Now, before I dive into this, like, I love America, okay? Like, I love America. This is a great country. feel so privileged to live here. But I think it's good for us to step back and dissect the place that we live so we can understand how we think, function, and live, all right? So that's what we're doing here, all right? So here's the first value that he mentions in those 13, all right? Individualism. There should be a, yeah, there it is. So here's what he says. I'm going to read a little section, and then there's a result or a ramification of these different values that I want to just touch on really briefly. All right, so he says this. They've been trained from early in their lives, this is speaking of us Americans, to consider themselves separate individuals who are responsible for their own situations in life and their own destinies. They have not been trained to see themselves as members of a close-knit tightly interdependent family, religious group, tribe, nation, or other group. Now, maybe you feel this, right? This individualism that you pride yourself that, I mean, we want to be different. We all have our own voice. All of our opinions really matter. All we're, we have this individualistic society, which there can be some good things that come from this, big pushes towards goals and achievements. There's some of those things. But here's what he says is some of the results and ramifications of this. Americans, he says, can be self-centered, isolated, and lonely. And the example that he uses here is how closely we hold on to our privacy. We love our privacy. We don't want our privacy to be threatened. But it's indicative of our culture. So you go to different cultures, they kind of live on top of each other. Everybody knows their business, right? But we as Americans, we love to have our privacy protected. We don't want people knowing our business. There are certain things that are off topic for us to talk about. It's part of our individualistic society. So this is one of the values. There can be some good things that come from this, but there's also ramifications. That's one of them. Here's the second one, all right? Time. For U.S. Americans, time is a resource that we can, be can be used well or poorly. Americans admire a well-organized person, one who has written lists of things to do and a schedule for doing them, all right? And so he says there's some ramifications for this. He says this, there's more emphasis on doing over being. Now, if that doesn't like hit your heart a little bit, that'll, I don't know what's going on in your heart, but that hits my heart. All right, so he says we value productivity over relational depth. 
All right, so you can think through this in your own life, right? So if somebody shows up at a meeting that you scheduled with them and they're 10 minutes late, what does that do to you? It's like, oh my gosh, how disrespectful, right? Don't they value my time? I have things to do, I have places to be, I have things to get done, right? I mean, I felt this when we first moved here. Um, I got stood up for two meetings, I was furious. Trying to connect with people in the community and just completely got stood up. Didn't even, they like ghosted me, didn't get back with me. It's like, oh my gosh, don't they know how busy I am? How many things I have to get done? It's a value, right? Third one, power. They have the idea that what happens in the future is within their control. And this one may hit me the most, all right? So hold on tight. Or at least subject to their influences. They believe that people as individuals or working cooperatively together can change most aspects of the physical and social environment if they decide things to do and a schedule for doing them. All right, so again, been able to accomplish a lot of big things because of this mindset, like going to the moon is one of them, where like we've accomplished big things that a lot of people never would have fathomed could have been accomplished if you believe that we went to the moon. I don't know. Maybe you're a conspiracy theorist. Maybe you're out there. Here's, but here's what he said. Here's a little bit of like a ramification or result of this. We tend to place ourselves at the center of the universe and look and struggle, if not refuse, to accept our limitations as human beings. Like, we have a hard time slowing down and resting. We have a hard time embracing that we can't accomplish every desire or hope or dream that is inside of us. And it almost feels like we deserve it because we are a people that have the ability and the freedom to go accomplish anything. Now, as followers of Jesus... We are to live according to the values of God's kingdom and not the kingdom of this world, meaning the society that we live in. Can there be good things that we take from these things? Absolutely. But our ultimate call, the place that we get our values from, is not this world, but actually where Jesus resides. And so as I was reading, there's another set of values that I saw a pastor put together that he just kind of drew from numerous different passages throughout the Bible. I'm not going to go as in deep as I did here. I'm going to read them because I want you to feel how starkly different they are from these values that we just touched on. All right. So here it is. He says this, integrity, like your character that matters to Jesus, peace, Speaking of relationships, so you, you prize someone's worth and then you pursue peace with them and your relationship with them. Love, mutuality or respect for them. Interdependence, meaning like there's a dependence and there's a partnership for moving forward in this life. Stark difference from individualism. You have faith, you have hope. Not this wishful thinking kind of hope, but like this future reality that we hold on to in the present. Something that we know is going to come into existence. This hope that we cling to. You have good deeds. You have service of one another. Many one another's that you see throughout the New Testament. And then you have worship of the living God. 
where it's not just this power that I have over creation, but there's this God that has power over all creation, including those who live in this world. Stark difference from what you see in our everyday living this life here in this society. Good things can come from this, absolutely. But a very different look than what the kingdom values are that we are to live by. So as a Christian, look, our lives are to look different. Our lives are to look different because we live by a different set of values. We don't just conform to this society, but rather we're to live according to the heavenly values that we see within the Bible. Now, here's what it can feel like. It can feel like you're swimming upstream. At times, it can feel like there's just these conflicts and these, there's collisions that are taking place in your home, your neighborhood, in your workplace because you're living by a different set of values. At times, it can feel like you're swimming upstream instead of downstream. But look, Jesus never promised us that following him was going to be a life of comfort. He never promised comfort. But look, he does say that if you live by his values, that it will be a better life. And that's what we go for. As Christians, we don't live according to the values of this world. We live according to the values that are in heaven. And if that is the case, then your life is going to look different. That's the first thing that we see as part of living a life worthy of the gospel. You're a citizen of heaven. And your life is going to reflect it. Now, here's the second one, all right? Because there's some things that you may be drawing from this. Okay, if, I, if I'm going to live differently, that means I need to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I need to work harder and I need, need to be diligent. I need to do this. I need to do that. That's not what Paul is trying to say, all right? So here's the second one. It says this. You live from approval, not for approval. You live from approval, not for approval, all right? So I'm getting this from the very end. So it says, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, we need to wrestle with what Paul means by the word worthy here, right? Like, what does he mean when he says, live your life worthy of the gospel? Now, there's a, a scene, if you haven't watched this movie, it's like 30 years old, all right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ruin it, but it's on you, all right? So, Saving Private Ryan if you've watched the movie, all right, the very end of this, I think, portrays the way that we're tempted to read and understand this word worthy. So the final message of the movie that you get at the, in the closing scenes is earn this. Earn this. Show that you are deserving of this. Go earn it with the life that has been given to you. All that has happened in the buildup of the movie, the journey, everything, the, the battle that's taking place, show that you have earned this. And what you get at the end of the movie, it, it's at the beginning of the movie, and it's, it's like this bookends. He's at this graveyard, and he has like this lifelong complex that this leaves him with. I mean, he's just in tears, standing over this cemetery of all the people that lost their life in World War II, and he says, have I earned the death of these five men? He has this lifelong complex that's going on. Now, is this what Paul is saying for us to do? If we're to live a life worthy of the gospel, is he saying, go earn this. Go show God that the death that Jesus died was worth it, that he didn't make a mistake. 
That it wasn't an error of his judgment that he sent Jesus to come and live and die in your place. Go and earn this. Is that what Paul is saying? No. Absolutely not. That's not what Paul is saying here. See, Saving Private Ryan is about these five dudes that have no idea who this private Jack Ryan or James Ryan is. But instead, like, they don't know him. They don't love him. They don't value him. They're just simply following orders that were given to him. But the gospel's completely different. We have a God who knows us to the T. Like, dot the I, cross the T, knows everything about your life. He knows you. And he loves you so deeply that he left heaven itself. He took the trek from heaven down to earth so that he could come and live and die, walk in your place, stand in your place, die in your place so that he may go into the grave that you don't have to and be raised from the grave. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The God-man here in the flesh who loved you and died for you. The gospel is completely different. So look, what Paul is saying here is this, it wasn't an obligation for God, it was his desire to come and do this. And if that's the case, Paul isn't instructing the Philippians or us to live in a way that justifies Christ's death. That's not what he's trying to communicate here. It isn't a call that we to, are lived to gain his approval or to live for his approval, but instead it's a call to live from the approval that we find in Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It's not because he looked down on you and said, these people are so great, I'm going to go down, I'm going to die for them. That's not why he came. He came because he knew that you had a broken relationship with him, and he's the instigator. He's the one that came down and pursued you. And so, look, here's what he's trying to say. He's not saying earn this. He's not saying prove yourself, show God that it was a good decision, convince me that you're deserving. Instead, what Paul's trying to get you to think through is a question in light of the gospel, then how should I live? If I'm fully approved, then what does it look like for me to live from that approval not to show myself or prove myself or try to show that I'm deserving of what he did for me. No, he's saying, you have my approval. And since you have my approval, then wrestle with the question, what does it look like for me to live in response to the gospel and the way that I live out my life? That's what he's trying to get deep into the Philippians. That's what he's trying to get them to wrestle with. So look, the idea of living a life worthy of the gospel, what does it mean? It means that you live differently, and then it means that you live from approval rather than for approval. But it also begs the question, okay, then what does it look like for me to tease this out in my life? How do I live a life worth that is, in a way that is worthy of the gospel? Our second question, right? So we understand what it means. It's not that we're trying to show ourselves or prove ourselves. We live differently, but we live from approval, not for approval. But what does it look like, Paul? What does it look like for me to live this out in the everyday life? Well, Paul gives us three phrases in the following verses that help us understand what the right response to the gospel is in the way that we live. All right, so I just want to take a few minutes to unpack what these three statements are saying. And here's, here's the three. Here's my summation, all right? First one is this. We live in harmony. The second one is that we defend the faith. And the third one is that we endure persecution. We live in harmony. We defend the faith. 
and we endure persecution. So the first one is primary one, and it's the one that influences how we do the following two. So we need to start there. So we, you have this phrase in verse 27 at the very beginning. It says this, standing firm in one spirit and in one accord. All right, so where am I getting live in harmony here? Here's a little bit of the context, all right? There appears to be at least two things that are going on in the book of Philippians here. The first one is that there's unresolved conflict in their church. At the very beginning of chapter four, you see Paul address two ladies by name that have some unresolved conflict, and he's calling on the church to help them work through and live out and figure out the wrongings and agree in the Lord is what he says. So there's unresolved conflict that Paul's, one of the reasons he's writing this letter. The second one is that they're experiencing persecution. So you have internal strife that's going on, but then you also have outside pressure that's going towards this new church in the gospel. In the very last two verses of our passage, Paul shares that God has granted that they suffer for Christ like Paul himself is. There's outside persecution. There's outside pressure that's going on. So in writing that the Philippians stand firm in one spirit and in one accord, he's contending that they preserve the partnership that God originated in them through the gospel. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to say, if you are wanting to remain steadfast in the faith, then you need to work out the internal strife that's going on inside of you so you can stand up together against the outward pressure that's coming towards you in the persecution of the faith. That's what Paul is trying to get at here as he's writing these words, live a life worthy of the gospel. That's why he's saying standing firm in one spirit and one accord. He's saying if you do this, if you live a life worthy of the gospel, then it's going to look like you living in harmony with one another. This, this needs to happen. Because look, Christianity is not an individualistic faith. It's a communal faith. We need each other. That's why Paul is emphasizing over and over throughout all of his letters, he talks about us being one in Christ. He gives examples about us being one body in many parts. He's trying to show, hey, you are this communal faith. You are this new people of God that God has put together because of your belief in Jesus. And look, if you are wanting to preserve the faith, then you need to preserve your partnership in the gospel as well. You need to figure out the internal strife so that you can stand up together against the outside pressure against your belief that you have in Jesus. There's a a story of this old man who had several sons and um, they had a lot of squabbling that was going on in between their relationships. And this disunity was hurting their family business, which they all were benefiting from. This is where they all got their livelihood was from this business. And the father called his sons together and handed a thin bamboo cane to the strongest of them, all right? So if you've had a bamboo cane, like if you have one of them, you can break it pretty easily. So he gives it to his strongest son. He says, break this. Here, take this, snap the cane, the old man said. And so this son, thinking his father had kind of lost it, uh, he does what his father says. So he takes it, he snaps it, no problem, easy as pie. The, the father gives him another bamboo cane. And he says, break it. And so he breaks it. And so what the father does, he ends up taking the canes, he bundles them together and gives it back to the son and says, hey, break, break the bundle. So he breaks it. It's a little bit more difficult, but he still is able to break it. And so the father continues to do this over and over and over again. And finally, it gets to this point where the son is sweating and he's 
straining, trying to snap the bundle that's been given to him. And what has come across the mind of his sons, there, he doesn't end this whole, this whole scene by giving like this final speech before his sons. The, the final message was kind of just intuitive to them. It came to this understanding, okay, I can break one, I can break maybe a small bundle, but if you put the whole bundle together, if they're all tied together, if there's a sense of unity that's around the bundle, even the strongest among you cannot break it. In essence, he's saying work out your differences so that you may be unified and move forward as a family of one. And when it comes to living out the gospel amongst the people of God, us together, we see the same object lesson. See, what does the gospel tell us about our reconciliation to God? What does it, like, what does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel? Well, you think about the gospel, you think about the things and the parts and pieces that go along with the gospel, and then you try to flesh it out. And look, if there's inner strife, if there's things that are dividing you as a church, then what are you supposed to do? You look at the gospel. You ask yourself, what does it look like for us to apply the gospel in this instance, which is why you run to the reconciliation that God has made for you with himself. We are the ones who contributed the sin in our relationship. We're the ones that provided the fracture. We're the ones that provided the strain. Yet God is the one who pursued us. He's the one that pursued making our relationship right with himself. He's the one who humbly, sacrificially served us and mending our relationship with him. And so look, that means that we're to do the same thing with one another. That's what Paul is teasing out here. You wanna know what it looks like to live, the, live a life worthy of the gospel? You wanna know what it looks like to tease this out? Well, then you apply the gospel to your situation. And in this situation, it means that you pursue reconciliation with one another. Now, to my knowledge, we don't have inner strife that's going on in our brand new baby little church here. But here's what wisdom suggests. Give it time. <laughs> Give it time. There's going to be a time where strife pops up, where there's going to be differences of opinion. There's maybe going to be hurt relationships that take place in the life of the church. And we're going to have to deal with the question, well, what do we do with this? What do we do with this inner strife? What do we do with hurt and broken relationships? Well, you live a life that's worthy of the gospel. You question, what does it look like for me to live out the gospel in this current situation? And in this situation, Paul's saying it's pursuing reconciliation. It's pursuing unity. It's working out your differences. It's trying to mend broken relationships in the life of the body. Look, God has treated us in this way, and we are to treat others in the church and outside of the church in the exact same way. So first, what does it look like for us to live out the gospel? How do we do this? You live in harmony. You pursue reconciliation and hurt relationships. The second is this, we defend the faith, and I'll do these a little bit more quickly. Verse 27, the end of verse 27 says, contending together for the faith of the gospel. 
This means that we don't bend or conform our beliefs due to the outside pressure that Paul is stating that the Philippians have. And now to do this, it means you need to know your Bible. If you're going to stand up for the faith, if you're going to defend the faith, then you need to know what you believe. You need to know what the Bible says. You need to know what the belief set that you have about Jesus, around his grace, about, around his goodness, what that means for your life. If you're going to stand up and defend the faith, then you have to know what you believe. Now, this is why we put such an emphasis on D groups in the life of our church. We want you to know your Bible and we want you to know what you believe. So that's why we make it a priority to read and discuss the Bible together. That's why we make it a priority to work through what we call the New City Catechism. It's a devotional, what helps you learn and grow in your understanding of what we believe in the Christian faith. We want you to know the God of the Bible, and we want you to know what it says and to know what you believe about God, sin, salvation, grace, all of these things. We want you to know these things. But look, notice how Paul says we defend the faith. He says, contending together. Not just you individually, while there, while there will be opportunities for you to do that, he's saying, no, this is a communal thing once again. That to defend the faith means that you know what you believe, but you stand up in it together. Not individually, but you support one another. That you help fill the gaps that you step in and you help stand and be firm in your standing in defending the faith. So look, this is why we don't study the Bible just by ourselves. This isn't why we try to learn our faith in isolation. No, we learn it together. We grow in maturity, what? Together. We stand in it together. And we, we need one another, look, to grow in our faith, but also to defend the faith as well. So first, we live in harmony. Second, we defend the faith and what does it look like for us? How do we live out a life that's worthy of the gospel? And then the last one is this, we endure persecution. We see this in verse 28. Here's the phrase, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. Look, Jesus promised us that in following him that we would be hated as he was hated. So we shouldn't be shocked whenever persecution comes our way. When we have people that stand up against us, there's outside pressure that we experience because we are Christians, we should not be surprised by it. Now, for better or worse, and it's debatable whether this is good or bad for us, we don't deal with a lot of like physical, harmful persecution that you see throughout the world. In fact, one, part, one pastor says it like this, it may be, very well be the case that embarrassment is the most feared form of persecution for many Christians in our society today. So if we are to participate in this, right, if this is a communal faith, if we are to be a, a people that stand up for the faith, that we work through, that we endure persecution together, then what does it look like? Well, it means that we pray. It means that we pray for those who are enduring such persecution throughout the world. Look, we, we aren't to have just this small, inward, navel-gazing mindset about us as a church. Look, we are part of like a small C local church right here, but we're also a part of the big C church, the global church. Some would call it the invisible church. And so, look, we have 
people that are in very serious, dangerous places that are trying to live out these truths that Paul is putting forth to the Philippians here, that they're defending the faith, that they're standing up for the faith. And look, we should be praying for them. That's what it looks like for us to participate in enduring persecution. That we, we aren't working through all of our evangelism strategies about how we get over our embarrassment over people not agreeing with us, but rather we're contending and we're enduring through persecution by praying for those that are also enduring much more difficult things that we're enduring. There's a number of different websites that you can go and look at regarding the persecution that's happening for the church globally. North Korea is one of the top ones. It's been number one for 20 years straight. It's the most dangerous place to be a Christian in all of the world. And one of these websites got a quote from this anonymous Christian that was there about prayer requests that people were having for the church that's exploding in North Korea. So upwards of 500,000 people have come to faith and are in like this underground church in North Korea, which is bonkers with the amount of persecution that's going on there. And here's what he says. I asked those who have been praying for North Korea from all around the world to pray for North Korea to come to the gospel. Look, not for our comfort, not that the persecution would cease, not that we would be able to live a more quiet, steady life. No, that they would come to the gospel. The North Korean citizens are like slaves. And look at the hope in this. With the light of the Lord, they would be free. Not free in terms of their state within North Korea, but in terms of their spiritual bondage. And look, church, this is how we're to be praying. For us to participate in enduring persecution, we participate by praying for those who are in dark, deep places when it comes to the seriousness of their faith. So what does it mean to live worthy? It means that you live different. That you live from approval and not for approval. How do we live worthy of the gospel? Well, we live in harmony. And so you, you pursue reconciliation in your relationships. It's going to come. At some point in the life of our church, it's going to come. And at that point, we need to be able to wrestle with the question, what does it look like to live out the gospel and pursue reconciliation as God has pursued reconciliation with us? Second, you defend the faith. You function as one. You grow in the faith together. You stand up for the faith together. That's why we take the Bible and our faith so seriously. And then third, you endure persecution. We are praying church. You participate in enduring persecution by praying for those who are enduring it much worse than we are. And not for their relief, but for the advancement of the gospel as we've seen prayers from these people that are in these places. All right, so let's conclude with this. Let me just ask you a handful of questions, all right? Are you living a life worthy of the gospel? Does your life look different from the rest of the world? What value set are you living by? Do you live from approval or for approval? Is your life just this constant chase to try to show and prove that you're worthy 
whether it be a person in this world or God himself, is are you living from a place that you're trying to live for approval or from approval? Because you have it. You have it already. You have it in God. In Jesus, you have the approval. Do you pursue harmony in your relationships? Is reconciliation and confession and forgiveness a regular rhythm in your life? Do you stand up for the faith? Are you in relationships with people that are gathering around the Bible where you're growing in relationships with other people and also growing and understanding what you believe because it's so important for us to stand up and defend the faith. We have to do it together. And then lastly, do you endure persecution? Do you deal with the awkwardness and the embarrassment by sharing your faith? And then also, are you praying for those who are experiencing deep persecution across the whole world? That's how we participate in enduring persecution. Look, the bond of of partnership hinges on such lived lives as this. Now, here's a cliffhanger for next week, all right? We'll discuss the key to such living next week because we find it in chapter two, all right? Live a life worthy of of the gospel. Live different. Live from approval, not for approval. And then apply these things by questioning, what does it look like for me to live out the gospel in my situation? Let's pray.